This is Macro Horizons, episode 229, Watching the Fireworks, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 3rd. While it's not an intuitive combination, pyrotechnics and monetary policy are set to define the holiday week ahead. How could this possibly end poorly? Here, Vale, hold this until it starts smoking. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the most relevant price action came in the form of a repricing in the front end of the yield curve as the market came to grips with the reality that, all else being equal, a July rate hike will be the path of least resistance. We saw the odds increase above 85% and the front end of the market sell off sharply. This was a function of a variety of events, most notable of which being Powell's hawkish tone when he spoke at the ECB Central Banking Conference, and, of course, the unanticipated decline in initial jobless claims. That, if nothing else, threw a fly in the ointment of the argument that the jobs market is turning and one should be more cautious with their non-farm payrolls projections. Perhaps just as importantly, Powell's acknowledgement that the committee as a whole anticipates two more rate hikes in 2023 combined to invert the 2s, 10s, and 5s, 30s curve even further. Operating under the assumption that the employment market is going to remain strong for the balance of 2023, it follows intuitively that the Fed will not only be able to avoid rate cuts until the middle of next year, but that there should be a degree of symmetry implied at terminal as the Fed ends its rate hiking campaign. Suffice it to say, two more rate hikes between now and the end of the year implies that we might not get to terminal until November. That being said, Powell has noted that the market shouldn't discount the probability of back-to-back rate hikes. Said differently, there's a case to be made for the Fed to move in both July, and September to make sure that they achieve the terminal estimate outlined in the SCP. That path for policy rates would afford the Fed the September update of the SCP and dot plot, which would allow confirmation that in fact terminal has been reached. Regardless of the messaging currently coming from monetary policymakers, the forward path of policy rates is ultimately going to be a function of the economic data. The challenge for investors is gauging the extent to which the Fed has already assumed a slowdown in both the real economy as well as a deterioration in the jobs market. To some extent, 
June's updated forecast have done a very good job of communicating that growth will slow, especially from the 2% pace in Q1 over the course of 2023, and still arguably be below trend next year, and the unemployment rate is anticipated to slowly move off the cycle lows. Our concern in this regard is that historically when the pendulum of economic sentiment shifts, it does so in a swift and dramatic fashion, and the unemployment rate spikes as opposed to a steady and gradual move higher. At the end of the day, Powell appears to have been granted a Goldilocks scenario for the real economy with an extended runway to engineer a soft landing. We're skeptical that this will last indefinitely, But between now and the 26th of July, there is very little that can derail the Fed. It was a week that saw a lot of better-than-expected data from several different facets of the U.S. economy, and this served to push the curve deeper into inverted territory, as well as increase the odds of further tightening in 2023, along with some hawkish comments from Powell who cited the labor market as being the driver of further tightening. And he also didn't rule out the possibility of back-to-back hikes this year. A hawkish tone was definitively set during the last week of the second quarter of 2023. Without question, the combination of Powell's comments and the jobless claims figures, to say nothing of the GDP revisions to Q1, increased the odds of a 25 basis point rate hike in July to roughly 85%. Now, to be fair... We have yet to see the payrolls figures and the unemployment rate for June, nor the update on CPI and core CPI for the same month, which could ultimately shift the probability of a rate hike. That being said, if the FOMC meeting were on July 5th, odds are that they'd move 25 basis points. And a big part of the reason why we think that the FOMC would deliver a hike if it was tomorrow, for example, is that as a defining characteristic of the latest tightening cycle, given the uncertainty around the size of rate hikes, market pricing has played a larger role in the Fed's calculus than is typically the case. Remember, during the last tightening cycle between 2015 and 2018, that the Fed was on more or less a predetermined path, 25 basis points every quarter, and a regular and predictable journey to the ultimate terminal rate. That contrasts sharply with what we've obviously experienced over the past 18 months or so, And this means that the Fed has been viewing the market pricing of a rate hike of any given size, whether that's 25 basis points, 50 basis points, or 75 basis points, as an opportunity to take what the market is giving the committee by bringing rates higher to match where market pricing has already moved. Ian and Vale, I think you guys would both agree with me that 80% is certainly enough of a green light for the Fed to deliver 25 basis points. However, as you mentioned, there's still a payrolls report and a CPI release that holds the potential to swing that market implied probability. And in the event we go into the July 26th meeting with the market priced somewhere below 60 or 70%, then it becomes a bit less clear what the Fed would ultimately decide to do. I'll add the caveat that The odds that are being priced in for a rate hike are not completely independent of the Fed, nor are they based solely on the economic data. The market is in the process of developing a better understanding of the Fed's reaction function to data at this stage in the cycle. So even if we get an as-expected 200,000 non-farm payrolls print and the unemployment rate is unchanged at 3.7% combined with a 0.2 on core CPI, 
the Fed could communicate to the market that that degree of moderation in the economic data is sufficient to skip July. Said differently, it's a combination of the data itself and updates from monetary policymakers as to how they view the trajectory of the real economy. That being said, Powell's comments in Portugal made it clear that as long as the data conforms to expectations, penciling in a July rate hike is the most prudent course of action. And in addition to some hawkish comments, Powell did offer something for the doves and his comments that while policy is restrictive, it may not be restrictive enough and it has not been restrictive for long enough. And there was certainly some room for interpretation on exactly what the chair meant when he said that. But our interpretation was that rather than explicitly emphasizing the need for more rate hikes, it was more an acknowledgement that policy hasn't been restrictive for long. And so that means there's still a meaningful amount of lagged impact that has yet to flow through to the real economy. And this is very similar to the messages that we heard delivered first at the June FOMC press conference, but then at his congressional testimony as well, and that the driving factor behind taking June off in terms of a rate hike is that rates are now far enough into restrictive territory and have been in some version of restrictive territory for long enough that we should start to see some more appreciable evidence of the restrictiveness of policy within the realized economic data. And so by disproving the idea that the Fed wants to hike at every meeting, now there's more flexibility to wait and see what actually happens within the data before ultimately delivering a hike or opting to wait until the next meeting. It's worth mentioning the calendar aspect of this as well, given the fact that while sure, before the July meeting, we'll only get one more month's worth of data, between now and the September meeting, we'll have three more months' worth of data and another full quarter's worth of economic information that will help determine that will help determine just how high a terminal rate will ultimately be required in order to continue to keep downward pressure on inflation. And between now and June 2024, we'll have 12 more months of economic data. That's just math. Didn't realize there'd be math in this job. Returning to the direction of U.S. Treasury yields, there is a decidedly bond-bearish tone in the Treasury market, with the bulk of the upward pressure in rates coming in the very front end of the curve, and that's led to a persistent inversion trend, not only in twos, tens, but also in fives bonds. In terms of outright yield levels for the 10-year sector, the benchmark has held in reasonably well, all things considered. We're still trading with a three-handle, even if there is a bearish undertone. And that is a tone that has survived even a notably bearish article from Bill Dudley as he outlined the case for higher rates. Now, the argument was sound. It simply assumes that the labor market will prove resilient throughout the course of this year, as well as anticipating a degree of stickiness in the inflation complex that remains to be seen. Of course, if inflation continues to run high and the jobs market remains tight, yields will increase over the course of time. The embedded risk within that is whether or not the lagged impact of monetary policy catches up with the real economy before the Fed's projected glide path back to neutral. And as we saw in the dot plot, as it stands, that projected glide path is currently penciled in at 100 basis points of cuts in 2024 to begin what the Fed is surely hoping is going to be a gradual unwind of the restriction that they've delivered to bring policy back closer to neutral and less restrictive and thus dampening to economic activity. However, as we continue to think about the Fed's forecast and what is almost by definition going to be the best case scenario for the real economy, 
along with the idea that Powell will be able to deliver two more 25 basis point hikes this cycle, is also some skepticism that the economy is going to be able to perform well enough far into 2024 that the Fed is only going to need to deliver 100 basis points of cuts next year, to say nothing of what's going to be going on in 2025. There's also an embedded disconnect between the Fed's ability to control front-end yields and what that means for the balance of the curve. The market has a history of skewing the Fed's projections and estimates toward the downside, particularly from the perspective of economic growth. And while the first quarter GDP increase of 2% in real terms starts the year off on a strong footing, The risk remains that as the balance of the year unfolds, we see more tangible evidence of what restrictive policy does to the U.S. economy. And as a brief update on some front-end dynamics, the ramp-up in bill supply in an effort to rebuild the TGA, as well as just fund the deficit generally, has found solid demand, both in terms of benchmark bills and the semi-permanent CMBs that the Treasury Department has decided to issue now that their borrowing is unconstrained. As we continue to monitor the flow of cash within the very front end of the system, it's also been encouraging to see that balances in the reverse repo program have begun to come down as many in the market were expecting they would. We've now seen a fairly consistent trend of sub $2 trillion usage at the Fed overnight. And while in outright terms, the level still remains unquestionably high, the trajectory nonetheless speaks to primarily money market funds that are presumably reallocating some capital from the RRP into the bill market to take advantage of yields in the very front end of the curve that offer a more compelling return than the 505 basis points at the reverse repo program. So Ben, what do you make of the argument that because funding for bill issuance is coming out of RRP, that it doesn't have the same potential quantitative tightening impact on the real economy? I would say that makes sense in outright terms. However, the one aspect of this I think is important to consider is that the decline of cash in the RRP and removal of some liquidity from the very front end of the curve is not QT in outright terms. What it does represent is a lessening of the mitigating factor this dynamic represented in contrast to actual QT. So the Fed's balance sheet continues to run down at $60 billion a month. And unlike when the TGA was running down, now we've seen that offset or buffer, however it's best characterized, removed. And so I would say that structurally and from a reserve scarcity perspective or through the lens of overall liquidity in the system, money market fund capital moving from the reverse repo program into the bill market probably doesn't change much. However, it does clear the way for SOMA's rundown and the actual quantitative tightening process to show up more significantly both in terms of market function but also in terms of monetary policy tightening given the fact that now that a higher terminal rate and an even longer period on hold than probably was initially assumed assumed has made its way into the market's consensus, that also means that the balance sheet is going to continue to run down. And that then brings up the risk of if we're going to stumble into a reserve scarcity episode once again, as we did in 2019, which I would say is extremely unlikely simply given the fact that outright reserves are so much higher than they were back then, as well as the fact that after the September 2019 episode, it is clearly a risk that is very top of mind for the Fed, which is why the standing repo facility has been formalized, and clearly the level of reserves is something that will no longer catch the Fed by surprise and trigger any funding market volatility as a result of the Fed's balance sheet rundown. Doesn't everyone have standing desks now? Vale, we've moved on to the treadmill desk. Nothing like walking and going nowhere. In the holiday week ahead, 
Tuesday represents a market closure for Independence Day, and Monday, SIFMA is recommending an early close of 2 p.m. As a result, the bulk of trading will be condensed in the last three days of the week. Wednesday sees the release of the FOMC meeting minutes from June, in which we expect to see a reasonable amount of discussion around the right level for terminal and how the Fed has been viewing some of the credit tightening associated with the regional banking crisis. Now, unlike most FOMC minutes releases, we have actually received a fair amount of information since the Fed meeting. Not only did we have the press conference and the updated projections, but we also had Powell's semi-annual congressional testimony followed by the ECB Central Banking Conference at which Powell attended and was part of a panel discussion about the current state of monetary policy. So it would be ill-advised to anticipate a sharp response to the FOMC meeting minutes at this stage. More potentially impactful for the overall direction of Treasury yields and monetary policy expectations will be Friday's BLS employment update. Non-farm payrolls are seen increasing 200,000 for the month of June, accompanied by an unchanged unemployment rate at 3.7%. Even average hourly earnings are seen as being somewhat benign at 0.3% on a month-over-month basis. An as-expected print would do very little to undermine the odds of a 25 basis point rate hike on the 26th of July. An upside surprise would only serve to reinforce those odds. That means that there's a degree of asymmetry as we approach the event itself, with a downside surprise leading a disproportionately large rally in the treasury market as a potential. All of that being said, the growth of payrolls realized thus far in 2023 gives the Fed more than enough flexibility to hike in July, almost regardless of how the BLS data prints. Perhaps more importantly will be the following week's confirmation of the trajectory of consumer prices. Core CPI estimates are somewhere between 0.2 and 0.3% on a month-over-month basis. While this does represent a deceleration from the recent trend, it certainly isn't convincingly back to the pre-pandemic norms. Within the details, the Fed has been and will continue to be focused on core services at shelter, if for no other reason then it has the highest correlation with nominal wages. It's with this backdrop that the market will be watching average hourly earnings print for June with an eye on the correlation with the CPI's super core measure. From a trading perspective, we continue to view the extremes in the yield curve as fadeable. However, we'll be the first to acknowledge that the cyclical re-steepening has taken longer to come to fruition than previously assumed. Similarly, dip buying in treasuries will become a theme once we see stabilization in both monetary policy expectations as well as the price action itself. Four-handle 10-year yields are not off the table, although we maintain harder to achieve than would have otherwise been assumed. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we contemplate the wisdom of Monday's recommended early close, we're left to ponder, if a strategy department never opens, is it still an early close? 
We're looking forward to Wednesday's start to the week. SIFMA. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.